Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 52, the book of Matthew, chapter 14, continued. I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open. We're going to do a lot of reading today. The beginning of Matthew chapter 14 was covered in the previous lesson. It's the story of the execution of John the Baptist. And the request for his beheading came during a lavish birthday party for Herod Antipas at the behest of Herod's wife Herodias. Now the marriage of Herodias to Herod was recent and John spoke out against it, calling it unlawful. Or in the Jewish context of the day, it was an illicit union and it broke the law of Moses. The issue was that Herodias was actually married to Herod Antipas's brother, Herod Philip. But for reasons unexplained, Antipas stole her away from his brother. Why would Herod or Herodias even care what this strange commoner, John the Baptist, had to say about it? Well, first, it was because Herod pretended to be a Jew who followed the Jewish religion and neither claim was true. And this false claim originated with his father, Herod the Great, when he ruled and also pretended the same things. So for John to publicly denounce Herod as breaking the Torah regarding marriage, and indeed it did violate the law of Moses, created an uncomfortable conundrum for Antipas, and it apparently greatly bothered and angered his wife, Herodias. You know, all throughout Hebrew history, it seems that Israel's kings, legitimate or not, regularly saw themselves as above the law of Moses. And certainly since the king sat atop Israel's justice system, as the ultimate judge and jury, he would never indict himself for wrongdoing. I mean, just think about all the wrongs that David did, and he never faced the, the Torah justice system. Now, second of all, Herod, uh, Herod rather was concerned because John the Baptist had a substantial following, and thus he had influence. Herod feared an uprising, not so much that he couldn't eventually put it down, but because Rome made it the number one priority among the many appointed rulers within their empire to keep the peace. And if the peace was broken, then the ruler was usually seen as the fault. In the end, Herodias used her lovely young daughter to entice Herod into offering her anything she wanted from him. He vowed before his birthday party guests, all dignitaries, of course, that he would give this young beauty up to half his kingdom. This, this was an expression. This was not something to be taken literally. For pleasing him, for pleasing his guests by performing a, a seductive dance. Her mother told her to ask Antipas for John's head, and not really wanting to, he obliged her, because otherwise he risked losing face before his guests if he didn't. The order was given, it was carried out immediately. Well, Jesus heard about John's death. He heard it through some of John's followers, and he reacted by departing in a boat to somewhere secluded to have a time to mourn and to, to pray and to, to contemplate what this might mean for himself. He was, after all, in the territory that Herod Antipas controlled. And Herod had made this connection between 
John the Baptist and Jesus, although it was a rather irrational one. But the Sea of Galilee isn't all that big. So a large crowd saw where Yeshua seemed to be going and they followed on foot all around the lake in hopes of catching up with him so he would perform his healing miracles on them. And because there were so many and it was getting near dark, Yeshua's disciples, who were late arrivals to that gathering, said that the crowd should be dispersed so that they could go to some local villages to purchase food for their evening meal. Yeshua told them no. The disciples were to feed them. The disciples were astonished at this command since about 10,000 men, women, and children were present, and the only food the disciples had available was what they had brought for themselves, five loaves of bread and two fish. Well, Jesus blessed the food, told the disciples to start distributing it, and miraculously, it fed the entire crowd with baskets left over. Well, let's pick up at Matthew verse four, uh, Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, find out what happened next. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to pick up at verse 22. <clears throat> Immediately he had the Talmudim, the disciples, get in the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night came on. He was there alone. But by this time, the boat was several miles from shore, battling a rough sea and a headwind. Around four o'clock in the morning, he came towards them, walking on the lake. And when the Talmudim saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they screamed with fear. But at once Yeshua spoke to them. Courage, he said, it's I, stop being afraid. Then Kepha, it's Peter, called to him, Lord, if it's really you, you tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. So Kepha got out of the boat and he walked on the water towards Yeshua. But when he saw the wind, he became afraid and he began to sink. And as he sunk, he yelled, Lord, save me. Yeshua immediately stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said to him, oh, such a little trust. Why did you doubt? And they went up into the boat and the wind ceased and the men in the boat fell down before him and explained, exclaimed you really are God's son having made the crossing they landed at Ginnasar and when the people of the place recognized him they sent word throughout the neighborhood and brought him everyone who was ill they begged him that the sick might only touch the tzitzit on his robe and all who touched it were completely healed. The story of Yeshua walking on the water is also told in the Gospels of Mark and John. And while each is similar, each also adds their own flavor. And some might say there are disparities of a factual nature among them. <clears throat> I want to remind you that the Matthew who is the author of this gospel is not Matthew Levy, one of the original 12. This is a different Matthew. And so, like the other gospel writers, he was not present as eyewitness to the events that are being spoken about. John is the exception, as he indeed was present to hear Yeshua speak in person, but <laughs> by no means does that mean he was present for everything he recorded in his gospel. Rather, these gospel writers took their accounts from a combination of eyewitnesses and researching earlier recorded accounts that were known. Now, modern scholars constantly debate over where these accounts might have come from and who originally, who originally wrote them, no one knows. All scholars can do is guess, so we're not going to go there. But before we dissect this story, let's read the accounts. 
in both Mark and John to supplement this one in Matthew. So turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. And we are going to read um, verses 45 through 53. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 53. Immediately Yeshua had his Talmudim get in the boat and go on ahead of him towards the other side of the lake, towards Bethsaida, while he sent the crowds away. And after he had left them, he went into the hills to pray. And when night came, the boat was out on the lake, and he was by himself on land. He saw that they were having difficulty rowing because the wind was against them. So at around four o'clock in the morning, he came towards them walking on the lake. And he meant to come alongside them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought it was a ghost, and they let out a shriek. For they had all seen him and were terrified. However, he spoke to them, courage, he said, it's I, stop being afraid. He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. On the contrary, their hearts had been made stone-like. After they had made a crossing, they landed at Gennesar and anchored. Let's move on now to the third account of this in John chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 14 to 38. So now turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. We're going to start reading at 14, uh, verse 14, and go on to 38. John chapter 6. When the people saw the miracle he had performed, they said, this has to be the prophet who is supposed to come into the world. And Yeshua knowing what they were on the point of coming and seizing him in order to make him king. So he went back to the hills again. This time he went by himself. And when evening came, his Talmudim came down to the lake, got into a boat and set out across the lake towards Kafar Nahum. By now it was dark. Yeshua had not yet joined them. The sea was getting rough because a strong wind was blowing. They had rowed three or four miles when they saw Yeshua approaching the boat, walking on the lake, and they were terrified. But he said to them, stop being afraid, it's I. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and instantly the boat reached the land they were heading for. The next day, the crowd which had stayed on the other side of the lake noticed that there had been only one boat there, and that Yeshua had not entered the boat with his Talmudim, but that the Talmudim had been alone when they sailed off. Then other boats from Tiberias came ashore near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had made the barakah, the blessing. Accordingly, when the crowd saw that neither Yeshua nor his Talmudim were there, they themselves boarded the boats and made for Kafarnahum in search of Yeshua. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Yeshua answered, Yes, indeed, I tell you, you're not looking for me because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the bread and had all you wanted. Don't work for the food which passes away, but for the food that stays on into eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For this is the one on whom God the Father has put his seal. We'll go ahead and stop it right there. We don't need to read any further with that one. Now, when we see these various accounts side by side, we immediately notice the differences. Some of the variations have to do with what parts of each event the gospel writer includes. It's not that one is accurate or most accurate and the others are less accurate. It's for the same reason that honest journalists will interview several people who witnessed or have knowledge of some event, because each will perceive it slightly differently, and each will also recall some elements of the happening, and they, they won't remember it all. Therefore, by stitching the various accounts together, 
a person can obtain a more complete story. But we also at times see the conclusions that each gospel writer drew from what they learned concerning an event they had investigated, and therefore what they felt that the readers should know. Now, because each writer wrote his gospel anywhere from about 30 to about 60 years after the events had transpired, then history played out a bit further. So they had a, a little different perspective than the people who were there. After all, the gospel writers wrote decades after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and the Jesus movement had grown substantially, something that at the time of these events that we're reading about, it just hadn't occurred yet. So how the people that formed the crowds thought about Jesus and His words and His miracles as they experienced them could be quite different than how the gospel writers might have thought about them. Since the passage of time gave these writers more information. So, using Matthew's Gospel as our primary source, we see that at the end of the day, after the multitudes were fed, the disciples got into a boat, headed back across the lake to the area they resided, while Yeshua stayed behind to dismiss the crowd. Why it was set up that way logistically that Jesus alone sent the crowds away, we're not told. However, Matthew makes it clear that the solitude Jesus had sought in the first place by coming up to the place they were at, and He didn't get, He again pursued. Christ went up into the hills to be alone and pray. Soon night fell. He was by Himself at the same time the boat with the disciples in it was slowly moving across the Sea of Galilee. Seems that a storm had erupted, something that happens with regularity at the lake, and the winds were howling. They were apparently heading into the wind, and they couldn't make any progress. Now, the complete Jewish Bible says the boat was several miles away, but, but that's not the best translation. Rather, the distance measure was recorded in Roman stadia, and a stadia was about 200 yards. Now, since the lake wasn't any more than perhaps five miles across, they were likely not much more than a couple of miles from the shore that they had departed from. However, they were stymied, and they couldn't get across that body of water because of that strong headwind. Well, the disciples' destination, according to Mark, was Bethsaida. Matthew doesn't tell us their intended destination so much as just where they actually wound up, which was Gennesaret. The complete Jewish Bible says Gennesar, but I'll explain that in a moment. John says that they were heading towards Capernaum, but not necessarily to Capernaum. Why don't these destinations agree? It's likely because all these places were pretty near one another. They were all located on the north and northwest part of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, I suspect that the Gospel writers knew only generalities about where it was exactly along the western side of the lake that the disciples were going, and so they assumed the village's name according to about where on the lake it was located, and they all concluded differently. Well, the ancient village of Gennesaret is the modern-day Gennesar. Today, a kibbutz is located there along with a wonderful, wonderful hotel and a very interesting museum. I've billeted a number of tour groups in the Nof Gennesar Hotel. The museum there is famous for their display of the, the Jesus boat, as it's called. Now, the boat is a typical fishing boat from the first century. 
that was discovered in 1986, buried in the mud and exposed due, due to a drought in the, the receding shoreline. No one claims that this is the actual boat that Jesus was in, but it is the real deal of what a Galilean fishing boat looked like in that day. It is remarkably well-preserved and it's well worth seeing because when we read in the Bible about storms erupting on the Sea of Galilee, like with our story of Yeshua walking on the water, it's pretty easy to understand why the occupants of a boat like that would get pretty panicky. Those vessels are quite small and could be easily swamped or overturned in a storm. Well, just above Gennesar, along the lake shore is Capernaum. Kafir Nahum is the Hebrew name. The northernmost village men mentioned in our story is Bethsaida. The main thing for us to understand is that the disciples departed from somewhere on the east side of the Sea of the Galilee and were headed towards the west side. Well, apparently they were battling against the waves and a headwind all night long because we're told that it was during, in the, in the, in the Greek, we're told it was during the fourth watch that Yeshua took a little walk across those raging waters towards those exhausted and frightened boat occupants. The fourth watch is what we would call 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., that, that range. How did Jesus know they were in trouble? I mean, Mark says he saw that they were having trouble rowing the boat. Matthew doesn't explain it, neither does John. The Greek word Mark uses for what alerted Yeshua is edo, which is usually translated as sea. However, it can mean sea in the sense of, of something that's visible in our eyesight or in the sense of just knowing something. It's hard to imagine how Jesus could in the dark of the night during a violent storm, spot a fishing boat bobbing around a mile or two offshore with several very worried and wet folks aboard it. Rather, the true beginning of this miracle is that he knew where the boat was, that it was floundering, and his disciples needed to be rescued. It's the next part of the miracle that is always, has always mesmerized Christians. Yeshua simply walked on top of the water towards the boat in order to get to them. Now we're told that when they saw him coming, they were terrified and they screamed out, it's a ghost. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. First, only Matthew and Mark tell us the disciples thought they were seeing a ghost. Did they think the apparition they saw was a ghost of Jesus? Did they think that Christ had died in the last few hours? I don't think so. In fact, we find Yeshua saying not to worry because it's I. That is, they didn't know the identity of this apparition that was walking across the waves and coming towards them. See, in that era, large bodies of water were mystical to the people. It was a common belief that evil spirits, scary creatures lived under those dark waters. Goodness, even to this day, there are cultures in the world that think sea monsters exist. So without doubt, they thought that in the midst of the storm, an evil spirit, a ghost, had arisen from these churned up waters and was coming towards them with bad intent. Water was thought of as the realm of chaos and evil. So a storm 
was seen as those creatures living below the surface causing all this chaos and evil above it. Yes, this is superstition, which the Bible certainly does not teach. But it just goes to show you how steeped in pagan societal beliefs that Israel had become. It was common. Even the disciples held it. See, this is another of those Bible stories, especially New Testament stories, that points out just how important it is to consider the first century Jewish context and its background that is presented to us in, that is told in. The Tanakh, the Old Testament, makes it clear that only God can walk on water. Job 9 says this in Job 9, 7 through 8, He commands the sun and it fails to rise. He shuts up the stars under his seal. He alone spreads out the sky and walks on the waves of the sea. In Psalms, we read Psalm 77, verses 19 and 20. The sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightning flashes lift up the world. The earth trembled and shook. You, uh, your way went through the sea, your path through the turbulent waters, but your footsteps could not be traced. And how could any of us forget? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was an unformed and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. Surface of the, waters. the point is that we are meant to see just what the disciples were meant to see. The sight of Yeshua walking on the water was an epiphany. What's oh, an epiphany? It's an unexpected revelation of God that reveals aspects of His nature, character, attributes. Thus, the divine character and nature of Yeshua that has already been publicly demonstrated in His many miracles and by His unmatched wisdom is displayed in spectacular fashion before His disciples. I'm going to say it again. It was well understood within Jewish society on account of the Old Testament scriptures that only God could walk on water. And now here's this Jewish holy man doing it. Now if you or I were there, how might we have perceived such a thing? I imagine we would have been just as terrified as they were. And we also can't just flash by the fact <clears throat> that in that era among Jews, wisdom, wisdom as virtually a, a person of God, in a similar way to how Christianity thinks of the Son and the Holy Spirit as persons of God, is said to walk on the water in the book of Sirach, chapter 24. Now these words I'm about to quote to you are said to be the person of divine wisdom speaking. Let's listen to this. I came out of the mouth of the Most High, the firstborn before all creatures. Who's speaking? Wisdom. The person of wisdom. I made that in heavens there should rise light that never faileth, and as a cloud I covered all the earth. I dwelt in the highest places, and my throne is a pillar of cloud. I alone have compassed the circuit of heaven, have penetrated into the bottom of the deep, and have walked on the waves of the sea. Now, I'm certainly not claiming that wisdom actually spoke these words or that wisdom per se is necessarily a person of God. The point is, this is how Jewish society in the first century thought of wisdom. It is what they firmly believed. And Matthew has gone to great lengths in his gospel to paint Yeshua as the divine embodiment of wisdom. So Yeshua walking on water while taking our breath away, 
as among the most enjoyable and meaningful short stories in the New Testament, they made a deeper and somewhat different impression upon Christ's Jewish disciples, the ones that witnessed it. Now, Yeshua perfectly well understood that the disciples would be frightened out of their wits at the sight of him. So he reassures them, first by identifying himself and then telling them, chill out, stop being afraid. Afraid of what? No doubt, it was not just of seeing what they thought was a sea demon, but also of their dire predicament in this raging storm. Well, what comes next is almost a short story into itself. It tells the story of the disciple Peter more or less saying, well, if he can do it, I can do it. And so he determines to get out of the boat and walk on the waters himself. Now I want to pause here to say that as one might imagine, few Bible academics and scholars give much credence to the story of Jesus or Peter walking on the water. Some say it was a much later Christian legend that had been developed and then written back into the gospel accounts. Others say the petrified disciples were imagining it all as a result of an extreme fear reaction. Some say that indeed it was some kind of an apparition that God conjured up, but it certainly wasn't the flesh and blood Jesus. And there are other rationalizations and denials issued besides these. But again, we are dealing with an intellectual body that must analyze biblical things within the scientific method, or they refuse to accept it. That is, the underlying foundation of this story of miracle is automatically dismissed because miracles cannot be justified as scientific or rational. Now, the only gospel account of this walking on water miracle that includes Peter is Matthew's. And he says that once the disciples saw that it was indeed Yeshua, Peter's response was to ask Yeshua to bid him to, to, to come to him in the water. Now, notice that this request is prefaced with, if it's really you. I told you before, if is one of the biggest words in the Bible. If it's really you. Now, remember, Yeshua has already identified himself so by now, surely the disciples must have recognized him. It seems that Peter's faith was hardly up to snuff. Nonetheless, Yeshua indulged Peter, led him into the water, and Peter, too, walked on the surface. His excitement overcame his fears. But once the novelty wore off, Peter remembered the wind and the storm he had been enduring the last several hours. The fears came flooding back in, and he sunk. And he yelled out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And Yeshua reached out his hand and took hold of Peter and pulled him back to the surface. And then... He chastised Peter as having so little trust. See, this remark has always troubled me. Because unless there was a pretty significant trust or faith that was involved here, Peter would never have stepped out of that boat in the first place. You know, it's common in the world of Bible academics to label this story either as an epiphany or the story of a sea rescue. Rather, I see it as a story that revolves around both faith and fear. C.E.B. Cranfield, in speaking about Mark's version of Christ walking on water and the disciples' response to the situation says, 
If it is as a result of obedience to Christ's command that the church or the individual Christian is in a situation of danger or distress, then there is no need of fear. I don't think there's a missionary that could honestly go out into the field that could feel otherwise. I think Peter may be representative of most of us. I certainly put myself in this category. He is the man of great faith that oscillates with little faith. He is the man that can hear the Lord calling and obey, but also the man that when things get tough, he gets distracted. He loses his focus. His natural fears take over. Yeshua says in verse 31 that the underlying cause of this maddening oscillation is doubt. And the Greek word is the verb diastasine. It most literally means, catch this, to be of divided mind. Divided mind. Now, although I wish that once I was saved, my life shifted into autopilot such that I could just get up every day and declare whatever happens is God's will. And then just take whatever the day may bring with it in stride in a spirit of shalom and with a smile on my face. That simply isn't what happens. Even with God's Holy Spirit living within us, it is a far more natural human behavior to focus on our fears than it is to focus on Him. How do we overcome this? You know, to stay focused on God takes concentration. It takes effort. It takes determination. It can be exhausting. Peter was fine for a short time because he saw Jesus and he believed. In one part of his mind, he was excited to take that big step of faith out of the boat into that violent sea. But very quickly, the other side of his mind intervened. He lost his concentration when he took stock of what was actually happening all around him. The wind, the rain, the turbulent water underneath him, it all became bigger in his mind than Yeshua who was standing right there before him. You know, as of the moment I'm teaching this lesson, it's the year 2020 and the world's in chaos. Governments are rising and falling. Families are disintegrating. People have little or no trust in what were at one time cherished institutions that provided stability for us. The COVID virus still has the world in its grips. People are fearful to varying degrees, not just because of the devastating effects of this virus, but more because of this toxic cocktail of calamities and troubles from which there seems to be no escape. At the core of the message behind the walking on water story is that fear is the opposite of faith. Fear is the opposite of faith. Again and again, we're told in the Bible, by God, fear not. See, this is because fear sinks down. Faith lifts up. Fear is a heavy millstone around our neck. Faith is a buoyant life preserver. It is quite easy to say, don't fear, 
It's a lot harder to practice it. I mean, I wish it were. We could all just enter our quiet space, fervently pray to the God of Israel, and then turn around and leave that space and our fears behind. Doesn't usually work that way. Because trust and faith isn't more prayer. Trust and faith is living out those prayers. The good news is that our trust and faith are only part of the story. The other part is that when we're sinking, for believers, there is a ready hand of our Savior to rescue us. And boy, I'm glad for this. Because huh. on any given day, I don't have perfect faith. Peter's faith didn't leave him as he stepped overboard and then noticed the chaos. Yeshua says it just became little. Katsats. Katsats in Hebrew. Little. King David puts it in a way that perhaps many of you can identify with. In Psalm 69 1, begins for the leader set to lilies. It's a piece of music by David. Save me, God, for the water threatens my life. I'm sinking down in the mud and there is no foothold. I have come into deep water. The flood is sweeping over me. I'm exhausted from crying. See, the danger Peter faced when he cried out, Lord, save me, man, it was real. It wasn't imagined. The dangers David was facing when he cried out, save me, God, they were real. They weren't imagined. The dangers we all face in this worldwide era of chaos and pandemic, whether or not we're believers, it's real. It's not imagined. However, if we are members of Yeshua's flock, we can also cry out, Lord, save me, and He will. I want to encourage you with this. As Christ's devoted followers, a failure of our faith will almost certainly occur because we're human beings. It doesn't mean we've abandoned God. It doesn't mean He's abandoned us. Yeshua didn't accuse Peter of having lost his faith. See, we don't have to fear. As strange as it may seem, many biblical passages make fear over faith a choice that we make. But to overcome fear, to replace it with unshakable trust and faith in God, man, it takes effort. It takes practice. It doesn't come naturally. But what better time to start than right now? Verse 32 says, Jesus and Peter climbed into the boat. Instant they did it, storm halted. The disciples were so overcome with awe at all they just witnessed that they fell at the feet of Yeshua and exclaimed, you really are God's son. You know, in this moment, the disciples discovered something that they had just not been able to accept. Something that Matthew takes us back to in order to close the circle. Back in Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, we read, As soon as Yeshua had been immersed, he came up out of the water. 
And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God coming down upon him like a dove and a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. I'm well pleased with him. See, we, we shouldn't be judgmental over the disciples saying, you really are God's son. That is, it's something they had heard, but now they understand the incredible meaning. God's Son and the Son of God were terms that were common in Hebrew history and had a certain meaning within Jewish religious society. A Son of God was a biblical term for an ordained king of Israel. The Old Testament refers to all of Israel's kings as sons of God, yet it was of course understood that these sons of God were humans, certainly not deity. But here, the disciples finally understand the connection between God and Yeshua. They literally were father and son, the father and the Son. All of Yeshua's implications that He was that Divine Son, implications He spoke that just didn't register in their minds, it all came together in one of the greatest aha moments that the Bible records. And yet, that doesn't mean that Yeshua wasn't also a king of Israel. In the Peshat sense, the plain sense, Yeshua is the Son of God indeed meant, a visible human king of Israel. But in the Ramez sense, a hint, a, a deeper sense of meaning, he literally was God's offspring, God's son. You know, it's interesting to me that many excellent, New Testament scholars, even one of superiors, Daniel J. Harrington, go on to comment that, but according to Mark 6.52, their heart was hardened and they failed to understand. That is, the Mark story of how the disciples responded to this walking on water miracle is the opposite of what Matthew claims. In Mark we read, verse 6, 51 to 52, he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. On the contrary, their hearts had been made stone-like. See, other Bible translations say it the same way, but what seems to get set aside by some Bible commentators is, Mark wasn't talking about the walking on water miracle that made their hearts stone-like, it was the miracle of the fishes and the loaves, as these verses plainly state. See, this is an example of why it is so outstanding that we have these four ancient gospel accounts to refer to in order that we can check all the gospel accounts on this story and then mentally stitch them together to get a more full picture of what went on. It is that according to Mark, the disciples thought it was pretty cool that Yeshua took two fish and five loaves of bread and somehow multiplied it to feed about 10,000 men and women and children, but they still didn't get who Yeshua really was. And the reason they couldn't is that their hearts had been made stone-like. Now, remembering the axiom that in modern terms, we must think of heart as meaning mind, function of our brain, that it is the disciples were still hard-headed. They just couldn't open their minds to the truth of the revelation of God on earth that stood daily in their presence. However, Yeshua walking on water and quelling the storm finally broke through those hardened minds such that they could say, and I paraphrase this, just like John the Baptist had told us of the words that he heard coming out of the sky, that this man 
he was immersing was God's son. Now we get it that this is what he meant. Yeshua really is the divine seed of the Father. Verses 34 to 36 sort of summarize what's just happened. And it brings this chapter to a close. It says they landed at Ginosar. And when the people there saw who it was, and we see just how far and wide Yeshua's reputation and even his face had become known, they rushed to one another's neighbors so they could assemble all those who were ill and with infirmities and take them to Yeshua. For them, Jesus was still only a miracle-working Sodic, a Jewish holy man. And Yeshua, who's always ready to heal and rescue because that's His and that's God the Father's nature, they healed. He healed all who came to Him that day. Matthew remarks that many simply wanted to allow the sick to reach out and touch the hem of His garment or the fringe of His robe or some such thing because they thought His power was that great. Now these terms all dutifully avoid the obvious. It is that no common Jewish person's garment in that era was hemmed. Nor was there a fringe or some such decorative thing attached to the bottom of their outer tunic. Rather, this can only be speaking of the thing that Jews in Christ's day and long before wore, an obedience to a commandment of God, tzitzit, and they were not located down by the ankle. Now, I've spoken at length about tzitziot. It's plural, tzitzit. All right, in my teachings on the Torah. These are God-ordained tassels made in a very specific way that are to be used as, a, used as memory devices for His people. Numbers 15, 38-41. Speak to the people of Israel, instructing, instructing them to make through all their generations tzitzit on the corners of their garments and to put with the tzitzit on each corner a blue thread. It is to be a tzitzit for you to look at and thereby remember all of Adonai's mitzvot, His commandments, and to obey them so that you won't go around wherever your own heart and eyes lead you to prostitute yourselves, but it will help you to remember and obey all my mitzvot, and be holy for your God. I am Adonai your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt in order to be your God. I am Adonai your God. Matthew concludes that all who touched, not Yeshua's person, not his flesh, merely the tzitzit he wore, they were healed. We will begin Matthew chapter 15 next time.